When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Forgetful Curator. I'm your host, Nigel Nicholas. This is a show about some of your favorite personalities who cover the Toronto Raptors. A little dive into their careers up to this point, why they chose to cover the team in the way that they do. Look at some of their favorite Raptor moments and their takes on the team going forward. This week's guest is Aiden Moss, writer and podcast personality at Raptors Republic. His weekly column, Five Things I Dig and Don't Dig About the Toronto Raptors, is one of my favorite reads are... He's also a regular on the Wrap Up Live podcast with hosts Sahal Abdi and Oren Weisfeld. An entertaining and insightful look at the Toronto Raptors post-game show. He's also a decent baller and a great guy to have a beer with. Welcome, Aiden. Thank you for being my first ever guest on the show. I am truly honored, Nigel. Thanks for having me. Are you really honored? Because I would like to know that very much, sir. I mean, Thank you. Yeah, guinea pig. I, I like to be I like to be experimental myself in my own life, so I'm happy to be the experiment for yours. I appreciate that, sir. You grew up in BC. Did you play hockey or basketball growing up? Nigel, I don't even know how to skate. No? Uh, how come? No. I don't know. I mean I've never taught, never had the interest. <laughs> the hockey culture never really drew me or attracted me and um yeah, so I never never touched a hockey stick. What was it about the hockey culture that didn't draw you? I mean, I think I probably figured that out later in uh, you know in high school, but the guys that were going to pick on me were definitely the hockey guys. Uh, <laughs> that that uh, I guess it was almost before the days of bro culture, but it was certainly bro culture in its in its infant stages, and it was yeah truly alienating, and I had no interest in it whatsoever. Wow, that's um, so deep already. We're going deep already. Here. Oh yeah, I love it. I yeah. like it. What was your first uh, memory of basketball? So I grew up uh, absolutely in love with and idolizing Michael Jordan. Oh, my dad wow. and my brother are big sports fans, and they they also did, and I just kind of followed their footsteps. So I was writing. Uh, you know, you know, when you have those like trifold, um, projects where you present something, yeah. mine was always on Michael Jordan. I had, uh, <laughs> my ear pierced early, like Michael Jordan, um, shaved my head like Michael Jordan. Uh, yeah, just totally obsessed. Wow. Wow. How would you describe your basketball game? I know how I would describe it, but you go ahead. Uh, I was actually on the, uh, Raptors Queens podcast you know it's like my games evolved or devolved over time i would say but uh at at recently i'm like a 38 year old kyle lowry i'm uh my game is cerebral in nature i have good like court awareness i'm a good team defender i'm a great passer 
I can hit a spot up three and time to time I can get to the rim, but my athleticism is not what, what, uh, what, uh, supports my game. Wow. And you know, that's why I always thought you would be a point guard, but you think of yourself as a shooting guard. I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a point guard in mind and I'm a shooting guard in position. I'd say like, I'm not the quickest guy to be guarding the point of attack. Um, so, but I can like direct trap. I'm also not the guy that's going to create off the dribble. I'm the kick out guy that's going to shoot or make the swing pass. But my understanding of the game, I'm very much, you know, like in high school, I was the team captain, but I was probably the third or fourth best player on the team just because like, that's the way I understood the game. Uh, and my skills and athleticism never translated to the way I understood it. Uh, you look pretty good out there, to be honest with you. I think you're uh, undermining yourself a little bit, my friend, but I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> no worries, Mike. I'm trying to do those things. What was the <laughs> basketball community like growing up in BC? That Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Victoria is where I grew up, and uh, it was, you know, it's not to anywhere like it was now. Um, but it it was well beyond, I think, where one would think Vancouver Island basketball would be in the early aughts. Like we had, so I went to Steve Nash's junior high. Um, so we had Steve Nash as kind of like this, this beacon. And then before him was Eli Pasquale. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He like, yeah, yeah. From he, Canada, he, uh, he was from Victoria as well. And he had a moment in the NBA. So, and then we had Ken Shields as well, who was coaching uh, the University of Victoria for many years and winning a lot of championships. So we actually had a rich basketball history. Um, and so there was like a really good culture. And um, I grew up in that. and It was small, but it was strong and competitive. And like our high school teams were always competing um, in provincials with other mainland teams. You know, they've obviously surpassed us now, but at the time we were much stronger. So it was a surprisingly like – uh, fervent, like uh, rich culture, especially with Steve Nash in his heyday at Phoenix. Like the city was going wild for him. So you said Michael Jordan and not Steve Nash. Did you ever, was there like a conflict of interest there for your I know well, The eras translated or transitioned quite seamlessly, right? Like MJ finishes um, the Bulls in 98, comes back with Washington, but whatever. And then Nash isn't really kind of ticking until 2002, I'd say. So it, it really like, and and my, th- my th- so it's Nash and Jordan and my third favorite player of all time is Kevin Garnett. Those three are like wow. the, of who I hold like holier than thou. And so actually it's basically three separate eras. I guess Nash and KG overlap a little bit, but, or do overlap, but um yeah, they, it was an easy transition from the Bulls to where – and the Wolves sucked forever, so it was easy to cheer for the Suns, who actually should have won a championship, in my opinion. But yeah, I agree with you. The Houston, yeah. Um, three very different styles of games, too. Yeah, I mean, they all – they actually all share the same intensity. Like, Nash is a very, very serious, intense dude. But you're right. I mean – I, they 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 all have completely different games. You're totally right, and I think that's what I'm drawn to. Like I always said, that I don't really care about football, but my favorite football player was Ray Lewis, even though I know he was a violent man and outside of uh, football. He he was like he was like MJ and KG, like just this undeniable, endless, 
uh, uh, intensity that was like uncorruptible and um, interminable, right? It was just, it was just all the time, all the time, all the time. And I love that. I think like that kind of passion and seriousness, like I don't necessarily emulate that in my life, but like, I love watching it. And right now we're seeing it with Jimmy Butler. Like I love seeing that kind of uh, drive. Wow. Yeah. That was something else yesterday. Absolutely amazing. So we were talking about obviously the, the heat game yesterday against uh, the Bucks and how he just took over a game like that. How many players in the NBA can do stuff like that? Mm, not a lot, honestly, and not, yeah. not on both sides of the floor either. And, and, and to like truly just turn a switch, like it's, you know, guys have heaters for sure. And there, and there are guys that can do that, but not, with the relentlessness and the killer instinct, that there's just something different, right? Like Booker can go for 70 and Booker can have 30 and a quarter, but there's something between that, that dis- that distinguishes Jimmy from most other players. Um, and like, you can count on m- one or two hands, the number of guys who can really do that. If quick question for you, if the Raptors when had made that eighth spot, do you think they could have uh, made the conversion over and, and beaten no. No, and I, I, just, well, I just don't think I like I true. I believed probably one of the last as one of the last fans that the Raptors really had a shot here. And you just kind of saw in, in the loss of the Bulls like this. It symbolized what this team really was and had been for the whole year, which is that they had no resolve. They had no resilience. And um, in the playoffs, you have to not only have the killer instinct, but you have to have the resilience. And, uh, I mean, we saw Milwaukee didn't in this round, and, and you completely melt down. And I could really just see the Raptors experiencing something similar. Like, you never know, but I just – I don't think they had it this year. That doesn't mean that they can't with the with a similar crew, but this year was just not it. So, going back to BC and you growing up there, what do you think went wrong in Vancouver? Why did that franchise just break down? Yeah, it's, you know, the thing about innovation is that, you know, sometimes you're not on the right side of, of that curve, right? Like they they saw, they had a vision clearly that, you know, bas- the NBA, the fr- NBA franchises were like, were growing, were becoming, basketball has become more popular. And they just, I don't really know the, you know, the execution of it. I've heard that there wasn't enough corporate money to really keep them going. I'm sure there was. There's documentaries and things on other reasons, but I really just think that they missed by, you know, five years or something. If they had, if they had, I mean, Vancouver prospers as a city a little bit later on, but also basketball just really takes off, particularly in Canada, you know? And I think, um, I think the timing was just a little bit off, unfortunately. It didn't help that like Bryant Reeves is no, is not a persona (laughs) and that Steve Francis walks and you know and like Sharif Abdurrahim was good but he wasn't great and Mike Bibby was good but he wasn't great like there was nobody to really like Dame Stoudemire immediately is a persona you can kind of market behind right and and the the Vancouver just never had that and they they also did a bad thing which you should never really do in the NBA was they kind of kept trying to sign and trade their way into relevance instead of truly building uh, from the ground up. And part of that is their drafting was bad. But, um, yeah, and so I think, like, from an operations 
perspective, they didn't do a good job. And then I also think just the market wasn't right for them. How about now? Do you think uh, Vancouver oh, yeah. could host? Uh, an, yeah, no question. The the groundswell is there. It's just basketball in Canada is is massive, right? Like it's just great. We saw the Raptors came to Victoria uh, for training camp, and they had like a scrimmage at the stadium, and it was an immediate sellout. You know, I had friends from Vancouver come. When they go to Portland, you know, I also had friends go to the Portland game. They show out like. In Edmonton, it sold out when the Raptors were there in the in spring, uh, spring training. So, like, summer training. So, I mean, I think and, – and then, you know, look at the college level. Look at, like, what Oren and Jonathan are writing about all the time, right? Like, there's just Canadians everywhere at every level, women's and men's, um, playing at uh, in Europe, in the college. At, uh, even CIS, like U Sports right now, is, is growing. Uh, CEBL is growing. Like basketball, I think really, you know, in 10 to 15 years, basketball will could surpass hockey in like in um, in our younger generations. It's just so accessible and it's so like fun. And the NBA will maybe talk about this later, but the NBA has done a very good job of marketing itself through, you know, individuals. So uh, and Vancouver's got a ton of money now. So I think like they could definitely, definitely uh, start a franchise there if they wanted to. But it's interesting to me, like if you go to a board and you look at a leaf board, for instance, and the amount of commentators that are on there and how many people participate, or you go to a Raptors board, you're not going to see the same type of numbers. Right. Yeah. I so, mean, I, I, I think a lot of that, I mean, I could be totally wrong. It could be that I'm in an echo chamber, but I also think you're, we're talking about, you know, on those boards are probably multiple generations. Right. Um, and I don't think in basketball right now, you, those older generations are going to be less so for sure. But I'm just, I just mean, you know, millennials and then younger and younger. I think basketball is is probably a minority in interest, but still growing at a pretty large pace compared to hockey. I would, I would be willing to bet. So do you remember how you became a Raptor fan? Were you a Grizzly fan to start with? And then you I made was. that transition when the, the yeah. team uh, folded? Is that what happened? Yeah, it's funny. Like, I don't I don't suffer like a true Raptor fan because I kind of jumped <laughs> over. And, in fact, I uh, up until probably, well, 2008 is when Boston won. I was a Boston fan. And and then oh, really? 09 and 2010, I think, too. Like, because KG was still my favorite player. He was still going. Nash oh. was still going in Phoenix. So, like, those two teams were um, were my favorite team. So, I, I was following the Raptors and cheering for them, but I didn't have the, the, you know, zealotry that perhaps I do now because I had those other teams to follow. So, then how did you become a Raptor fan that you are today? Or, well, you know. Someone who follows the team and as a writer. Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I mean, for, as a fan, I was just kind of aimless, right? Like KG's washed <laughs> in Brooklyn. Nash is done in LA. It's kind of, you know, and, and I don't really have this feeling anymore, but it's kind of, you know, you have this nationalist pride, right? In sport, typically, you know, in the Olympics, but, you know, in Victoria, in Vancouver, BC, like we cheer for Seattle, Seahawks and Seattle Mariners, I guess, and other sports. So there is a regionality thing. But when you're looking for that one team that you want to 
cheer for, you're going to cheer for the Canadian team, quote unquote. So that, I think that's kind of, I also moved to Ontario, so that helped. But um, yeah, I just, I think it was by default that they're the only Canadian franchise. Top three favorite Raptors moments. Oh no, I'm, uh, well, uh, I'm really bad with individual events. Um, I think like obviously the Kawhi shot forever and always, um, I, I, I'm trying to think, but I mean, really just, I, I won't choose a moment, but Kyle Lowry watching him and following him, uh, was truly just a joy. Like, you know, I I comp myself to him, but but part of that is because you look at his body, right? Like that body should not be thriving in the NBA. Uh, you look at his athleticism, nor should it be in the NBA. And he's just so smart, not only spatially and strategically and tac- tactically. He's so smart with his body, like the way he. Um, you know, and you, you compare him to Freddie, right? Like similar stature, maybe not as strong, maybe not as low center of gravity, but pretty similar. And you watch how they attack the paint. And, you know, Freddie really for a long time has had trouble finding space down low. Lowry d- still, I mean, now he's not the same, but Lowry, not so much. And, you know, it's just, it's just slight little movements, slight little, um, you know, bumps or halts or change of speeds, whatever. And I, so watching him over the, over the years, as I became a Raptor fan was really just like valuable to me because it, it kind of validated how I play, but also it was like truly novel um, compared to most players in the NBA. I think the first time I saw Lowry was the year they got him. Um, It was an exhibition game in Montreal and I think they were playing the Knicks at the time. And he was that this bowling ball who just came in and just like took over the game with his energy and determination and willpower. I'd never seen anything like it before. I thought that guy was going to be my favorite Raptor. But then after that game, for some reason, I guess he didn't want to stay in Toronto. He just kind of like he was a different cat for a while. But yeah, when he has that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's true, too. I mean. You know we're 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 seeing it with younger players, but like I remember his weight his weight problem, and I th- I think he was unfairly like fat shamed, but certainly he changed his body, and he changed um, his leadership style too, which is kind of an excuse me a natural evolution you hope or progression with most players, but it was cool seeing that change as well because you're right he I mean he was a hothead and you know, he had been traded multiple times or were dumped multiple times because of that. And I, I know, I remember hearing that he had similar in Toronto. Who was he? I mean, he was competing with Calderon. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and, like yeah. that. Can be, and Casey gave Calderon the, 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 the lion's share of the time. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, that in of itself is always cool to see just that, like that maturity process. Yeah. He has gone through a lot. He really yeah. has changed who he is. Oh, sorry. Third, my third favorite moment. And this is because this is the gambler in me, but uh, it's Serge Ibaka. And I want to say Robin Lopez. I think it was them. 
and I'm playing these are the, like when FanDuel is first started the daily fantasy and I <laughs> I have a lineup that is just it's doing so well so good and I have Ibaka and I think Robin Lopez and it's the third quarter and I like truly I'm going to make a decent amount of money and they turn around and they both throw haymakers at each other in the middle of the game like they both <laughs> they both go for each other's heads and they both get tossed at the exact same time and i just like that you know memories are half of memories are probably trauma based and i just remember my, like being crestfallen because the they basically ruined my my daily fantasy in one go but uh but yeah, watching uh, that's another guy I love to watch is Abaka. Like that guy mean business mm. when when he was serious, and I love that about him. It's interesting you didn't mention uh, Carter. You didn't mention the 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 playoffs. You didn't mention the shot in Philadelphia. You didn't mention the yeah, dunk contest. It wasn't really my time. Like I I followed it obviously and was happy and loved him and but you know like I've seen that documentary with uh, how. Vince impacted basketball in Toronto and you know that 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 was somewhat similar at West but it was really for me it was Nash and I think for a lot of my like peers they would say the same yeah interesting the regions how they affect these things yeah so how did you make that transition from fan to writer what was that about um I've always been a I've always enjoyed creative writing and I've always enjoyed basketball. And so it just kind of made sense for me to combine the two. Um, I was writing on my own on medium, just posting them for nobody to read. And then uh, I was coaching and I met a guy who was running this basketball tech startup thing and he wanted me to write a blog for them. So I started doing that. And then they didn't have an audience either. And I realized, you know, I'm, I'm doing all of this writing, like someone's got to value it somewhere. And that's when I reached out to Raptors Republic and Zarar was just happy to, to bring me on. And the rest was history. That was, I guess, three years ago now. So Zarar was in charge of uh, bringing on new talent? Yeah. Right yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I reached out. Well, I reached out to him directly. And so we, we chatted and yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, you've been there, what, two and a half years now? I think so. Yeah, I think I joined in early, yeah, early 2020, maybe. Wow. wow. 2021. I can't remember now. So for you, you graduated from law school. Yeah. But you didn't practice, right? No. Yeah. And as a writer, I think we're all products of our environments. Uh, for everything sure. adds up into how we write, our perspectives. How do you think that legal studies affected your writing style? Yeah, I mean, I think it's part of my writing style. Like, I mean, for those of who don't know my writing style, it's, I'd say it's like uh, verbose, um, a little bit eccentric, but also concise at the same time. Um, and so the concision definitely comes from law, right? Like it's it's writing in first principles. It's writing, you know, your first statement is what you mean. And then the rest is kind of like backing that up. Um, I also think that we're kind of in a day and age where if you don't get what you're trying to say out quickly, you're going to lose people's interest. So that that um, has kind of tied in. And then the other part that I think influences my writing is I I read and do read a lot of fantasy. Um, and so I think like 
that kind of, and I've always had kind of just an imagination as a kid, like playing whatever. And so those all have influenced how I write. Like I like, I like to bring in sources or I like to bring things in that don't naturally or typically fit into, you know, sports writing and try and blend them. So like weird metaphors, different kinds of analogies, that's that kind of thing. That's that's definitely your writing style. Yeah. Uh, Favorite fantasy writer. Uh, Oh, good question. Well, I'll go back to my childhood. My first fantasy book was Brian Jacques. I don't know if you know, like the Redwall series. No, I don't. I mean, it's a kid's book, but it's about animals that fight each other, essentially. Wow. Wow. Um, I've been reading Steven Erickson recently, who I think is from Victoria, I want to say. But yeah. Steven Erickson. I'll put that down. No Brandon Sanderson at all? Nothing like that? Ooh, no, yeah. I, I mean, I've my fantasy reading has drawn off a lot of recently, unfortunately. I don't have the time, but no, I, yeah. appreciate that. I, I do a lot of I like fantasy a lot. Actually, I'm starting to write one, so I, really, see how, but yeah, we'll see how that goes anyway. Cool, been writing it for a while, I haven't got that far. <laughs> so, you describe your writing as verbose. Um, I love your writing. Uh, to me, it's a beautiful mix of poetry and analysis. It's almost overwhelming at times i think because you know it's like there's so much going on in terms of metaphor picture building and rhythm at times i have to put the work down and work through my mind to understand where you are right and i I think that to me is a sign of what a great writer all my favorite writers they have these moments where i just sit there and i go wow you know and i need to work through this again and that's some of So here's an extract from a piece you wrote in October 2020 uh, titled The Obsession with Three of D Players. And I chose this because it's not a piece that is overflowing with your style, but it's a, you say here, it's why we're talking about three and D players. It's why we observe the obscene signings of Damari Carroll for $60 million and Kent Bazemore for $70 million. Why Trevor Reese has played for 11 teams in 16 years. Why Bruno Caboclo is a never-endingly hopeful project. And why this year, at the trade deadline, we saw Houston abandon its young center and a first-round pick for 29-year-old Robert Covington. Memphis dangled Andre Iguodala like chum over shark-infested waters. And New York drive a bidding war for the contemptuous Marcus Morris. You take mundane thoughts and you turn them into little pockets of poetry. That has to be taxing. <laughs> to write that paragraph must have taken a little bit of time. Yeah, I'm not really one for attention to detail, but I, I actually I think I enjoy editing more than I do writing. And so like, I get the joy of writing something and then coming back to it and and reviewing it and changing it and reviewing and changing it. And I think that's where those small little pockets come from is I'm just kind of, you know, I'm getting lost into one paragraph or one point and I'm changing it and adapting it. And it takes way too much time. And I, you know, I mean, like the Raptors Republic are awesome the way they pay us, but, 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 but per hour on the time I spend on these articles is it's pennies, right? Like, and that's my own choosing because I enjoy it and I love it. And it's like an expression of art for me that I've never had before. And I'm really appreciative of that. Um, but yeah, for sure. It, it takes its time. 
Um, for me, I'm, I'm very, very similar when I write. Um, I think sometimes you get so stuck in the trees, you forget the forest, right? So I think every single word has to make sense at some point, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, and it, you know, it's a fear-based thing too. Like I used to write a lot mm-hmm. for nobody because I didn't want to be put on display. And again, I have to credit Raptors Republic. Like they're so supportive on just letting your stuff go out there and letting you learn your own voice and synthesize your own work over time. Um, and, you know, Lou Zatzman has been a, a great mentor for that. Like, well, we'll support you if you need it, but, but, but it doesn't need to, right? Like you don't have this pressure over your back. And I, I really appreciate that. But, um, but yeah, to your point, like, um, I don't remember your point, but yeah, it's, 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 okay, it's, here's hard, another to, example. it's hard to let go of things. That's what, that was my point. It's hard to let go and release it to the public. So I don't have that same fear that you do when I write, but I do want to look good when I write it, when I put it right. out there, right? Yeah. I want, you know, yeah. I don't want to have, make a look too many commas here, you know, all these little errors that can come in the way. Does this word out of place? That can also, it kind of hinders the whole process, but it's also part of putting everything together properly. It makes my mind work a little bit better. Yeah, um, I got another thing here from April seventh. Things I don't dig and don't dig column that you started. How did you start that column, by the way? What was the uh, process there? I, well, I didn't know this at the time, but Will Lou did it before me at Raptors Republic. I I stole it from Zach Lowe, who writes for ESPN, who's who is my like idol as a writer. Like that's who I aspire to write similarly to. Um, he's another guy who does like short, concise, punctual, uh, punchy, um, writing style. And I really, I really like that. So that's, I, he does 10 things I like and don't like call them like once a month, I'd say. So that's where I stole it from. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, and and, sorry to, and to add to that, I chose it because I don't like writing deep, 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 deep analysis articles. I like to address small things write about them as best I can and then move on. I don't like to get lost in the weeds. So that's why I chose that style as well. Okay. So this is from that article. Um, Fickle physics of energy. Momentum is an unruly character, a trump card upending an otherwise predictable poker hand. Ask any of the elite eight teams this year, the men's March Madness or the fav- their favorites, not there. Ask the 2007 Colorado Rockies, who looked to be a meager 500 team until they ripped off 21 wins in 22 games and rolled right into the World Series. Or the 2006 Edmonton Oilers, who finished eighth in the Western Conference, only to run it straight to Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals. The Toronto Raptors aren't a red-hot asteroid breaching Earth's atmosphere. I'm not saying they're primed for a sudden deep run either, though most fans probably said that about those aforementioned teams too. What I am saying is momentum's a funny thing. Just there, when all its unknown variables suddenly converge. For that, momentum must never be dismissed. When you write that, what's the process? What does that look like? (laughs) I don't know. It's probably like old school feral. I think I just black out and it it comes. (laughs) Is Is that how it comes? Do these words stream off the keyboard? Yeah, 
Yeah, and then I go back and and fix it all up because it's all garbage. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, you know, I I have an idea, a concept. It's like okay, you know, momentum. Like the Raptors seem like the type of team that that if like and it looked like momentum was building. It's like, well, what is what is momentum? How does that play a role in sports? And then I just kind of go from there, I guess. Um, wow, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's I, beautiful. I, Thanks. I mean, I yeah. There's no there's no rhyme or reason to it. I wish there was because I think it would be a lot easier if there was more of a formula. The process, right? Yeah. Yeah. I understand but, exactly. But um, yeah, I mean, again, like I did a lot of journal writing and like writing to myself, and I think I think that stream of consciousness that I could do there without it really like uh, like I wouldn't really ever edit that. I think that has translated into this work as well. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting because uh, I, I never did anything like that for as a writer. I think for me, it's always been technical writing, and then I transferred it over. So it's interesting that you come from that space, and, and your writing has a different hinge because of it, all of those things coming together. Or maybe the, all this editing has to do with the legal process as well. You're so in tune to making everything go sentence correct. Yeah, definitely. And I think – and as i do that i think each puzzle piece kind of slowly like molds together you know i think it's the way people think too right like i've you know been reading a bit about the way people visual or with the way people think and whether they visualize it or hear it or how they visualize it and i think um i think i don't actually really know how i do yet but i think whatever that is you know the i think i see things in different um uh, scenes like you know, the, like, not necessarily a metaphor, but I actually see it in a different like existence, and then I'm translating that into the way I want to write. If that makes sense, yeah, uh, totally makes sense. Yeah, you've got that, an idea, but uh, but it's a very different way of different form than it's on paper. And then your job is like the architect to re- reinterpret it on, on in in that form. Yeah, which is which is what fantasy kind of is, right? Like quite often, it's an allegory, or it's kind of like um, uh, a translation of what the author sees in the real world, right? And so I'm I'm grasping at straws, but that could be you know one one way in which I've kind of approached it. Interesting. So your Twitter account, Gentle Watch at Aiden Moss. Yeah. Um, it should have been called Grumpy Watch, if you ask me. There's like this total dichotomy between your columns and your tweets. Yeah. So which one is the real you at the end of the day? Well, grumpy is a good word. Most of my friends call me the grump of the group. <laughs> uh, I I don't think grumpiness is the right word. I think I'm the vocal critic that's willing to say what I think is so whether it's nice or not. And often it's not. And that gets misconstrued as grumpy. Whereas rather it's just me describing what is, I think a negative perception of something. Um, Yeah. I'm torn about Twitter to be honest, because, and it also depends the time of day, if I've had a coffee or not, but I think like, I think, I think it's so important for people to hear like, what's going on in the world, I guess, and what people think about it. And, and as I've gotten older, I've realized like having a positive perspective on that is probably more important than the negative one. Um, But sometimes I just can't tolerate what I see or read. Like, 
I won't say the person's name, but you know, today about the way Giannis responded in the press conference and he's, you know, he said it's a loser's mentality. Like if you're not a winner, you're a loser. And it's just like, that's such a stupid thing to think about the world and about people and individuals, whether it's about uh, winning a championship or not, like it's not binary. There is, it's not just winners and losers. And so I had to say something, right? Like, so there are times where I speak my mind a little bit too much, but there's also a lot of tweets that I delete immediately after sending them because I realize <laughs> I just, I shouldn't bother. Ah, you know what? I think it's one of those things. It's, it's therapy, right? At the end of the day, right? Yeah, but it's also out. public space. So I don't want to yeah. be doing my therapy to, you know, the world. Do you find, so I find this when I'm putting out a tweet, I always have to keep in mind that I'm a writer and people I represent are. Does that is that something that puts into your consciousness when you're putting a little bit together? Yeah, the and especially more that I've been representing Raptors Republic. I mean, ultimately, no one's reading my shit. Like, there's probably you know forty people that really actually ever see what I've tweeted. So I'm not I'm not really that caught up in what I'm being what's what I'm saying and what I'm being perceived, how I'm being perceived. Cause at the end of the day, I don't think it's that many people. Uh, although I'm appreciative of those who do read them. Um, so yeah, I, it's more that I just don't want to be like overreactive or overly emotional or say anything that's just like unnecessary. Like I, I want to say it's the same thing with my columns. Like I want to say things that are relatable that people can kind of build off of or, or connect with, um, and like, and that can hopefully, uh, engender conversation and discussion with it. Obviously it, that doesn't always happen with Twitter, but that's, I think that's kind of the principles I try and live by is like, is this a probative good that I'm throwing out there? I just find with your Twitter, you're doing the opposite. There's no conversation happening. It's like, you know what? You've had enough with this person and you're going to shut them up. With that's, this not particular comment. that's not always. That's not always. That's sometimes. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's how I see it. Okay, well, that's all I'm saying. All right. Well, maybe I, maybe, I, <laughs> maybe I see myself in the wrong light. <laughs> I'm working uh, on it, Nigel. I'm working on it, buddy. That's what we're here for. That's what we're always here working on things, right? <laughs> Where does your unhealthy fascination with Draymond stem from? What Draymond? Yeah, uh, you've 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 championed him a couple of times. Well, you know, he's another guy that has this competitive edge and intensity that is much deeper and more overwhelming than I think the average person. And anybody who's played with me on the basketball floor will know that I am similar. Like I I do kind of get this like blood rage where I I kind I kind of do lose control. Like I'm not I'm not inappropriate. I'll never kick a guy in the nuts. I'll never like <laughs> slander somebody like personally, but I will be like loud and sharp and intense. And I, and so I, I relate, I understand it. And I also love it. Like I, as long as it stays within the bounds of the game and obviously Draymond's crossed that, that line and I don't support it, but I, I see where it's coming from, particularly in the heat of the moment particularly when there's another actor involved in the exchange. Um, and so I think, yeah, I, I just, 
I guess that's where it comes from is I, I relate to it. And so I'm a little bit on his side than I would be to others. Yeah. I have the same thing with uh, the kid from uh, Memphis. Uh, Josh's name. No, oh, Brooks. Yeah, like, Dylan Brooks. Brooks. I have the same thing with Brooks. I don't know why he's a bit of a jerk, but you know what? I, I love the fact that this guy is competing over his depth. He's punching out, out of his weight a lot of the time, but he does it with hard work and perseverance and does anything he can for the team. And for me, I'm willing to take a blind view of some of his other activities, but it's just that desire to make your team better at any cost is, is something heroic. Yeah. yeah. And I think, yeah, they have definitely crossed some lines. Um, and sometimes it's detrimental to the team. Clearly it has been, especially with Draymond. But like, to me, I mean, there's two things with what, what you mentioned with Brooks, like loyalty is a value and principle. That's very like important to me. And I, so I see, you know, it's the classic guy you'd want on your team, but you'd hate to play against, you know, mm-hmm. like I love those guys because they're doing things and they're filling gaps that most people aren't willing to do. And they're mm-hmm. doing it not be necessarily because they love it, but because they know that their team needs it and that nobody else will do it. And that they're, and that there's people better than them who shouldn't be doing it. Therefore they're going to do it. Um, and I, I see myself in that, but I also just think that's like, that's like true humanity, right? Like that's true community and like social good is that, you know, I'm going to do this negative thing or this less fancy thing and it's going to better our collective. Um, And sometimes that's good. That gets misconceived. Like uh, you do things that actually are detrimental, but I think in the grand scheme, Dennis Rodman's another perfect example, right? Like, um, he'll just do whatever he has to do to make sure that they're the best team that they can be. And I, I just really respect that. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, my son was a referee for uh, Aiden's basketball tournament. And there was the final game. I think it got a little heated. Actually, it was heated throughout the whole time. And I remember Zach telling me afterwards that uh, some guy came up to him and uh, he said, yeah, Aiden told me, don't worry, I got your back, Dad. I got your back, Zach. That's what I remember. So that's, I think, a little bit about Aiden at the end of the day. He's that guy who's always got your back. Yeah. Um, I, which, which it's kind of funny that you say that about certain players, but I also noticing, noticed you championing Kyrie on Twitter, who might be very much different type of guy, right? Like in far as that goes, that, that whole sacrifice for team. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but I think, well, Kyrie's a very complicated figure, and I, I I, think there's a lot going on there, part of which is that he just reminds me of, like, me in my early 20s, even though he's a little bit older, which is that, like, you know, you, you, you glom onto these values or these, like, perspectives on lot on your life and it's like the absolute truth and then suddenly you feel like elevated like like you you're more enlightened than most and and he comes across that way unfortunately and i think he's been misguided and understands things like his heart's in a good place but he doesn't understand things in the right critical way um and i say that because you see like what he does in his community 
and like what he and, and how he's supported different groups and how he's like an amazing activist for like for the black community like I think his heart's in the right place. Um, I haven't really, I don't, but, it, but then again, like you see the way he's operated with franchises and kind of deserted people. And it, you know, it does, it does leave you wondering. Um, so yeah, I, it, yeah, I'm a little bit torn, but I, you know, I'm trying to, I also just don't like when mainstream media pushes one way. I'd prefer to push back. Cause I don't like, it's never, you know, absolute one way or another. Um, and you know, like I, like I, I identify as Jewish. Like I didn't, you know, love what, what he was doing with that, that movie and stuff, but I just don't, I, you know, I don't see hatred in him. I just see like him misunderstanding, uh, what he thought was like, uh, an intelligent perspective. I don't know. Context is everything. I think when we judge people and how who they are and what they are. And looking at them through a certain lens, you're going to see something. And if you look at it through a different lens, you're going to see something else. Totally. And I think that's the way it is with Kyrie. I think he's he has certain aspects of him that are very selfish and very me, me, me. And then there's other things where he seems to be looking for a deeper truth. And that's, that's the part of Kyrie that I find fascinating as well. Me too. But and it, I, sorry, sorry. No, I, I think that's the hard part is putting those two together sometimes. And, and that's who we are as human beings. And I think that's who we are as writers as well. People are trying to establish values without, without being concrete about it for myself. Yeah. And I, and I do respect anybody that's willing to do that work and be introspective and try and figure out those truths. Um, particularly for people who have like a really horrific, like, like, you know, ancestral past, right? Like I think there's a lot to work out there and there still is a lot to work out. Um, and I also think, you know, I'm actually writing about this for hopefully tomorrow or Saturday, but you know, we, we do, what we see is very one dimensional with everybody in the NBA. Like we don't know what's going on. Right. And so like for us to make judgments of character about somebody like anybody in the NBA is just ludicrous. Like we have, we, we see probably 10% of who they really are. Um, and, and then we, when we do see who they really are, we just jump on it most often, right? We, we find an angle to criticize it and we attack it. And so I think in just in the fact that Kyrie's willing to be honest and, and outspoken and say what, how he truly sees something or feels that in and of itself is like unique and beautiful in, you know, in this day and age of the NBA. So, you know, inst- and then we, I mean, it didn't help that some of his perspectives were anti-Semitic, but like, you know, <laughs> um, you know, we immediately like attack him. So I'm sensitive to that. No, I understand. I understand. I completely understand. that. I think it is, it's easy to judge people, but we don't have enough variables that we know to make the full judgment, but we still wanted to judge it. And that's, that's part of the ugliness of the whole truth, right? At the end of the day. Yeah. Podcasting. How are you enjoying the wrap up? The wrap up's great. Sahal Abdi, Orrin Weisfeld, they're uh, Keon Haddad. Like those guys are great. It's been fun. It's, it's tough when after every game it's a, you're deflated and then you went after the games when you win, you know, the, you're cautiously optimistic. It's tough. 
but and it's it's a unique experience like trying to evaluate and reflect analytically on something you've just consumed is not not how i operate i have a terrible short-term memory and long-term memory um so it's difficult but we we have a really loyal fan base, which is cool. I love interacting with the viewers. I think that's my favorite part is just having discussions. And I'm still confused why people are interested in what I have to think. But, hey, that's cool. I, I, I'm honored by that. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been good. So, yeah, that's the hard part for me is I don't think people understand how hard it is to just watch a game and then come up with something of meaning that you can distribute right. to others and in an expertly manner or in that format that you think might interest them. It's not an easy thing to do at all. How do you do it? What's the process for you? Well, and I, and I'm not the best, like, you know, you, I, you listen to someone like Samson folk and like, you know, he, his understanding of the X and o, X's and O's is, is much more advanced than mine, particularly when he's seen it without kind of knowing the yeah. context, like he can identify things really well. And I can't really do that. I, I, you know, I've evolved over time. It's like identifying themes, things that I'm like, I'm also looking for things to write about too. So that really helps, I think. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like I'm looking for repetitive themes or, or things that kind of stand out that are abnormal, but you know, often, often I'm not the one that's carrying the show. It's like, you know, I think Oren and Sahal have a better grasp of those things and I'm much better kind of reflecting on what they've said or being reminded by, by one of the viewers, what, what happened, but, oh yeah, this is my thought on it. Um, but you're right. It's hard, it's hard to come up with something unique all the time. Uh, yeah. So I, I also, you know what, for me, when I'm watching a game, I can't help but be a fan. That, that's This is my right. team. But way more before I was writing or doing anything else. Right. So I'm in that moment looking at the ball and I'm looking at that player and trying to figure, as opposed to zoning out a little bit, seeing the whole court and seeing the movement that's going on around it. And that's where I get stuck when I do a post-game show. It's like, yeah, did I see that correctly? I was just going to say that, is that I, you, I've ha- I have to actively zoom out of watching the ball. I think that's the biggest thing. Or or staring at the hoop waiting for the ball to go in, right? Yeah. And one one trick I've done is kind of like thought about a player before the the like if I notice something that's going on beforehand then I'll like zoom in on that player and kind of watch him with or without the ball and then and then it kind of changes your perspective of how you see the game you know like is OG just standing in the corner for the corner for 18 seconds like is there activity for him is he rebounding um those kinds of you know that that's the way I kind of shift my perspective and then I kind of on my notes I don't know this is kind of like inside baseball but like on my notes I'll have themes on one side and then kind of actions on the other like timestamps um so then when i'm in the podcast i can think about talk about themes and then i can quickly be like you know in the third quarter this happened and that kind of feeds into the the theme that i was picking up on but yeah i mean it really does take away from the entertainment value of the game. <laughs> it really does. That, you know? It yeah. Does. <laughs> and early on when I was podcasting, I'd be like, oh, God, it's the third quarter. I don't have anything to say. Yes. You know, like, yes, I don't have feeling, right? Yeah. What do you prefer, writing or podcasting? Uh, oof. I like both, actually. 
I think it's kind of mood dependent. Yeah. Yeah. If I think gonna, if you had the only going to go one, you only had one, which would it be? Podcasting. I don't want to like downplay podcasting, but it's certainly easier. Yeah. Uh, like, and, and writing is, you know, I write the weekly column and that's that I also have a full-time job. It's like, it's quite stressful. Like, trying to be trying to meet the standard that I set for myself and also have a unique perspective. Cause I'm, you know, many of my ideas have been taken by all the other great writers at Raptors Republic. Right. So, so not only coming up with them, but then having them withstand not to mention something happens in a game as I'm writing and it completely changes what I was writing about. So I think like writing is a lot more arduous and rigorous. Um, but the end product of writing is a lot more satisfying. So like it really is both, but, but podcasting it, when you're co-hosting podcasting, I find it a little bit easier. No, I agree with that. I would take I, writing I think... though. I'll take writing. Okay. Oh yeah. Really? Huh? Wow. I'll take writing. Yeah. I didn't see that coming actually. Um, so I understand you cover the Canadian men's national team as a writer. I heard you not came so away scarred from the process. Yeah. Not uh, so much anymore. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Um, I, I didn't cover them much. I, I was, uh, I followed them. Uh, yeah, I didn't cover them that much. Well, you, from what I understand from Orn, yeah, uh, you definitely did not want to become a beat writer after you, uh, Oh, well, that camp. was, that was with the training camp. I think, yeah. no, yeah. that was with yeah, the Raptors yeah, yeah. training camp in Victoria. Yeah. That, I mean, that it's just hard. It's like, I mean, I, I love it. I, I really do love it. Like going in there, meeting with the players, like asking questions, but again, you got to be like quick on your feet. Um, you have Mm -hmm. to, you know, one thing I learned from Oren and some of the other people there is like, they all have stories in mind already. Right. So they're asking Mm -hmm. these questions, trying to elicit answers that, that fall into their story one way or another. I don't write like that. And so like, I go in like completely blind uh, and then I want to ask questions based on what I'm hearing. But then of course, you know, there's a hierarchy, you know, Grange and Kareen are like up and Lewenberg are up there, like asking like multiple questions. And you're just kind of, I mean, it's my first time. So I'm obviously not going to go out of my way. Um, so it's quite intimidating. Um, I did get the opportunity to interview Champagny, which was oh, really? awesome. He was like, so cool and like easygoing and i was like dude this is my first time ever and he's like no <laughs> don't worry about it and it's like going on a date you know like when you're you you're listening to the person talk but you're actually thinking about the next question you want to ask because you're like god i can't like i don't want there to be an awkward silence um so, so all of that i the i would i would be right it's just it's a lot it's a and it's i think it's a thankless job to be honest like it's they they grind, man. They really work hard, and they've got to put out content endlessly, and they're opening themselves up to a lot of criticism, and I don't think uh, people really appreciate that. I that So I've done a couple of 905 games. Um, I think I'll be doing more of them next year. I think, like you said, it's the process is not something that we do as writers for columns. So... Right. It's learning a whole new process. It's learning how to see a game in a way that's um, going to create a story. 
Um, it's also about trying to find questions to interact with your, uh, your, your with uh, either the coach or the players that's going to solidify what you're trying to say. So you kind of have to have an idea ahead of time of what you're going to write. Otherwise, you're going to come up with some really bad questions to ask them. And I've sat there thinking, I need to get a question because I need to have a presence here so that, you know, in future people know who I am, right? Yeah. So you have that, like, I've got to get something out, but I just don't know what to say. So you ask yeah. some stupid questions now and then just to make it clear. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's a performative aspect to it, right? Like, it's uh, it's public speaking. I mean, until you're comfortable, like, they're all comfortable with it now. You, you should watch Oren. The guy is, like, cool as a cucumber. He just kind of, like, waltzes in there. He's a professional. And, I mean, they all are. And so, I, you know, it's like anything. You learn it and you experience it enough. It just becomes natural. But um, it's the, you know, I hate working a nine to five, which I do. And so the cadence of a beat writer is pretty interesting, right? Like it's different times of the day. You're up, moving around, but it's like, I think that's taxing over time. So, um, yeah, I'd give it a go for a year. Why not? Yeah, I would not. I think I would. I, I'm enjoying this 905 thing. I'm, I'm a long way from being good at it, but uh, yeah, it's something that I, I would definitely like to take a look at further. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about your. We've talked a little bit about your writing stuff. Let's talk a little bit about some NBA basketball stuff for a second here. Okay. Uh, the Raptors are coming off a disappointing season. What's your yeah. takeaway from last year? And what changes need to be made for this team to be successful? Like this, just, just this last year. Yeah. So I think, I think what's, I don't, to be, the answer is, I don't know. I mean, I'm quite torn and I'm not really sure that we have a full understanding yet. Like it's something has to give obviously. And you could see it on the floor and it was just uh, like, Ah, I have so many thoughts. The Fred Van Vliet question, I think, is the biggest one. You know, I think there's been so much contention from fans and writers about who Fred Van Vliet is to this team. There's no question he's basically an all-star player in a vacuum. Um, There's so many... He strikes me as one of these players, at least in the Toronto Raptor context, that when he's scoring at a high volume we don't win and and sometimes that's not really like that's not his fault i would say you know our offense is just dead and that's all we have going but i also don't think he kind of fits in the picture with this team at least not the way it's currently constructed so you know him and pearl's pick and roll was super deadly but do we want that to be our primary action probably not um, and so some more context to that, why you say it's not why you didn't want that to be the primary action. I don't know that you can, well, first of all, I, the Raptors offense just generally isn't very good, right? It's not very interactive. <laughs> it's not very dynamic. There's not a lot going on. And when you have this pick and roll, like I can't remember who was talking about it on uh, on a national broadcast, but it was recently about another team, and it was it was basically the same idea where like three other players are watching these two guys mm-hmm. do the same thing over and over again, and it's like, what does that do to their defense? What does that do to their interest in on the offensive end? What does that do to a defense watching 
all of this go down, right? Like it's very easy to adapt. And so I like, you know, it's a nice option to have for us, but um, I think the way Freddie has been approaching the game for us is um, not the role he should be playing. I think he should be like the secondary or third option offensively. Um, and he hasn't been that. And I, so I think we need to figure that question out. Like, do we pay Freddie? I don't have an answer, yes or no. And if so, how is he going to fit in the offense moving forward? Like, Pascal Siakam is our number one guy. That's That's been decided, in my opinion. And so many times in the fourth quarter, we don't get Pascal the ball. We don't get him in positions to score. That's a problem. Scotty Barnes, same thing. We don't get him in positions to score. We're not accentuating or leveraging his abilities. That's a problem. And is Freddie – it's not Freddie's fault per se, but I think Freddie's inhibiting – those two guys from operating, if that makes sense. So it's more Freddie's role or Freddie's uh, style of play? It could be both. I do think that if Freddie were willing to play a different style, which I think he's capable of doing, uh, it would leverage or it would accentuate Scotty and Pascal's games, which are like who I think are most important. That being said, it wasn't like – Freddie had to be scoring because we weren't able to, you know, it's kind of like chicken and the egg, I think a little bit. And I don't really know what nurse's uh, approach or strategy was or what he was saying to the guys and what was and wasn't being executed. Um, but I just think the way in which I just think moving forward, it's Scotty and Pascal need to be the primary focus on the offensive end and that our schematics need to, um, need to involve a lot more movement and dy- dynamism um, than what we've seen this past year. We can't just rely on offensive rebounding and transition either. I think that's for me, I would say. Um the league has had a lot of issues. I want to move away from the Raptors today because we're going to be talking. You talk about. I'm probably sick and tired of talking about the Raptors at this point. The league has had a lot of issues with injuries. What's your take on that situation? Um. Yeah, I think it's a problem. I'm. You know, you can't, particularly an entertainment product that is built around a small group of super famous people. You can't afford to have them injured at the most important time of your entertainment product, which is the playoffs. Right. Um, I, I don't remember being so excited for the playoff matchups in the first round, like the Clippers, the Suns, mm. Memphis, Lakers, Cleveland, New York, as it turned out, Milwaukee, Miami, um, Kings, Golden State, like all of these matchups are incredible. And then quickly half of them are, are hampered by injuries. Um, and that, that, that just can't happen. And I think load management obviously doesn't necessarily work. Um, I think part of it is inevitable with the playoffs. The intensity moves up. The physicality moves up. The the amount of time between games is like limited. Oh. Um, and so some of it's unavoidable, but I think, I think the NBA's approach has been wrong. Like, I think they need to be thinking about 
A, they need to think this may be a bigger picture, but they need to be thinking about the regular season, how to make it more valuable. And they need to be thinking about the playoffs and how um, they can enable an environment that their best players are healthy and able to perform throughout. What do you think the issue is? Why do you think this these injuries are occurring? Do you, is there do you have any take on that? I don't. Um, like, I it's has a to be. Thing. It has to be the wear and tear. Mm-hmm. And like you know, it we kind of saw this in football and we saw it in hockey too, right? It's like guys got bigger and stronger and faster, and the parameters in the arena are the same, you know? So like, you know, that's basically, I mean, that's the best answer I have is just that like guy like John Morant jumps and runs like few people we've ever seen. And, you know, he's coming down and landing on top of himself. Like I think there's rule changes and stuff that can, can, um, you know, protect that. And I've heard theories about, you know, without hand checking guys are going at a faster speed and able to jump, uh, you know, unadulterated in the, in the paint and stuff. So there, I think there's other things like that, that enable it. But I think ultimately it's just that like, there's just more force going on in these guys' bodies and the schedule is the same and the, you know, the travel's the same. And so it, the injuries are just more likely to occur. What other issues do you see on the horizon for the NBA? I actually think there's lots. I I think I, I might be one of the few, but I think the NBA is on a bad path. Um, if you think about the game itself, I'm a millennial. I'm an older millennial. My attention span has been eroded just by virtue of <laughs> everything around us. And the attention spans of the younger generations are probably even shorter. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. It just is. Mm-hmm. And the games feel longer than they've ever been. You know, mm-hmm. like these reviews, the challenges, the timeouts, the commercials. It's just, it drags these games out. You have this building momentum at the end of a game, this tension growing. Like, I can feel it in my bones. It's like, oh. We're going to review that for a flag around for one. <laughs> like the guy tapped his chin. Who cares? Right. Like they, I think, I think all of, oh, oh, sorry, that's my dog. No worries. Um, I think a lot of the changes that have been made um, are not thinking about the future generations, the future audiences. Like the games, you know, baseball. Baseball made these changes so that the pitch counts faster um, mm-hmm. than something else in the outfield. Like I think NBA needs to be thinking about that. They need to think about the younger generations who probably aren't watching full games or just watching highlights. Um, so I think there's an entertainment value problem. And I think, you know, injuries is a big part of that. Sticking to an 82-game season – having teams not necessarily tank now, but not necessarily taking all of the game seriously. Like there's that anecdote about CJ McCollum and Dame Lillard sitting down at the beginning of the year and choosing the games they're going to be sitting out. The tickets are supremely expensive and people can't Mm -hmm. afford them. And then they're going and there's nobody there. Like there's just so much going on right now that the NBA is leaving to fate. And I think they need to be more decided and more choiceful on 
on their product. Um, otherwise, I think they're going to lose uh, their audience. Wow. That's a lot there. So listen, thank you very, very much, Aiden. I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, I did. And I hope anyone who's listening out there enjoy this because Aiden is a very, very interesting guy. And he's a lot of charisma, a lot of charm. And uh, he brings a lot to the table. So I appreciate you being my first guest. And thank you very much, sir. Thanks, Nigel. Best of luck with the podcast. Really appreciate you having me. Appreciate it, buddy.